good. Okay. Good morning, everybody. Want to share a couple of announcements with you this morning uh, before we uh, head into worship. So tonight at four or this afternoon at four o'clock in the sanctuary, we're going to have another meeting of our, we call it the Gateway Forum, which is a chance for anyone who has questions or doubts uh, to come and to talk about them in a, a safe space where uh, we can just chew on truth together. And the questions that we're going to be dealing with tonight, though we've got lots of opportunity to ask different questions, are um, aren't all religions the same in some way? And um, aren't, isn't Christianity specifically or religion in general uh, in today's world repressive or oppressive in, given our modern understanding of how things go? So we're going to unpack that today, 4 o'clock. If you, we'd love to have you join us here in the sanctuary. Uh, tonight at 6 is the Awakened Community Worship Service. It's a gathering of all the churches here in town at the Riverwalk Stadium, uh, a chance to come together and worship the Lord as Christians in the city. Uh, Operation Christmas Child uh, shoe boxes. there is still time to do ones, and, and if you want an empty one, they are available in the office. Uh, we're collecting them today and next Sunday, and if you want to bring completed ones to the hall uh, in the office, by the office out here, uh, that's where we'll collect them, but we need them here by next Sunday to deliver them on time. Uh, we've got a couple of events coming up. Uh, Gateway at the movies. There are two movies uh, that are be, that are uh, showing at 7 p.m. at AMC on Vaughn Road, uh, November 9th. Where is a movie by the Voice of the Martyrs called Sabina. And if you want to go to that one, you've got to sign up on our website by tonight. We have the tickets reserved, but you do have to sign up. November 16th, we're doing a Tony Evans uh, video called Journey with Jesus. And finally, uh, there is a ladies uh, simulcast, which is um, on grounded, standing firm in a shaken world. That is this Friday and Saturday, November 12th through the 13th. And there's details and registration on the website. And Missy, hey, Missy, so Missy's waving back there. If you want more details, uh, see Missy Cruz. And so uh, this morning, I wanted to uh, share uh, some scripture with you today, Psalm 148. So let's all stand. in reverence for God's word, but also to prepare our hearts for worship. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord. For he commanded and they were created and he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree, and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord. For his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints. For the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord. Let's worship together.
poor creatures. The poor creatures of our God and King. Lift up your voice and with us sing. No praise
hands together. Praise God. And praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly Praise Father, Son, and Holy
Judah 
let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you that you, Jesus Christ, are worthy. That there is one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have saved us, that you have ransomed us. And Lord, you have saved us not just from your wrath, you have given us life abundantly. And so, Lord, I just pray for all of our people, all of those in the church, all of those in Christ, that you would allow us to understand what that means to live life abundantly. That, Lord, you have set us free from sin. We are no longer slaves of sin, but we are slaves of you, Jesus Christ. We are in the one who has conquered death. We are in the one who has broken all chains We are in the one who has set us free. The same resurrection power that raised you, Jesus, from the dead abides within us. So, Lord, this morning I pray for a wonderful sense of the freedom that we have, an awareness of the freedom that we have in you. Lord, I just pray that we would live in that. I pray that whatever we're facing this week with trials, with suffering, with temptation, with failure, with all of these things, Lord, that we would count it joy because we know that as we remain steadfast, Lord, as you give us the grace and the mercy to remain steadfast, you are doing a work in us. You are bringing us to completion, Lord. And so I pray this morning that we would rejoice in you and the fact that that we win because you have won. And Lord, I want to pray now. I just want to pray for unity for our church, Lord. I want to make Colossians 3, 12 through 17 our prayer this morning. I just want to read this and just let this be our prayer, Lord. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Lord, I pray that that scripture would embody the people of Gateway Baptist Church, that we would strive to live that way, that we would desire unity among us, Lord, and that you would do that miracle, that work in our body. Lord, we pray for deacon elections as those are coming up and we're praying through that. We thank you that we have godly men in this church, Father. We just pray that you would raise up faithful, qualified men to be reconcilers in this body, to do the work, Lord, that that can distract from the teaching of the word of God and from devoting ourselves to prayer. I pray that you would raise up faithful men full of your spirit to lead us in that way, Father. We just pray that you would call forth those men and that you would just make it clear who they are and that we would be able to pray over them and lay hands on them and send them out into that, into that ministry and that service, Lord, to our body. Lord, we pray for C.J. Falcioni as he's continuing to recover from this procedure he had done this past week and the heart issues going on and just all the fear and anxiety that comes along with these health issues. Father, we pray that you would touch him this morning, 
It's good to have him here with us. So I just pray that you would bless him, Lord, physically, spiritually, emotionally, that you would bring healing and wholeness to him this morning, Father. We just pray you touch him and just continue to give Nikki uh, just faith and endurance and perseverance as she serves him and loves him in this time, Father. We just pray you'd be a, uh, just Lord over them and over their household and that you would just bring healing and wholeness there. Lord, we pray for the young adult ministry, for Parker and Zach and Rachel and all the others as they, as they lead and as they study. Something needs to change by David Platt. Father, I pray that you would fill that group with a zeal for your word with a passion to make you known in their own personal lives, in their city, in this church, Lord, and that you would fill them, you would do a work in this church as a result of them pressing into your word and seeing the amazing things that you have done, the amazing God that you are, and that they would lead us into service and worship and evangelism and all those different things, Father. We just pray, Spirit, that you would bless them, that you would multiply their number, that you would give them unity, that you would give them a wonderful sense of community, that you would bind them together in your love. And as a result of that, people would come to know you, that we would come to know you more, Father. Lord, we just pray that you would be with Greg this morning as he comes to preach the word. We pray that you would fill him with your spirit now, that you would help him to be able to recall to mind the things that he studied and prepared for him, that you would just um, make him a, a humble, obedient vessel through which to bring your word to our church this morning, that we would receive it, that we would hear it, that we would be changed by it. And Lord, what a gift, what a blessing that we get to sit under faithful teaching of your word this morning. We just thank you for that. And Lord, we, uh, we thank you for the opportunity to give. Um, I know that uh, there's just, uh, it's a wonderful way to worship, Father. It's a wonderful way to lay our lives down in a practical way before you to declare that we need you more than we need the things of this world. And so, Lord, I pray that we would give joyfully this morning. I pray that we would give uh, out of the abundance that you've given us, Lord, that we would give sacrificially, that your word would go forth in this city and in this world, Father. Lord, we just love you. We praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. And before Greg comes, just want to go ahead and release all the first through fourth graders to kids' worship. You are free to go to kids' worship, so y'all have fun. Good morning, Gateway family. And I do consider you family. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, Grady is away with some of the other men of the church uh, with their sons on a camping trip, uh, hiking in the woods. And uh, and so I've been here at Gateway since 2003. Uh, I'm an elder here in the church amongst a group of of great elder brothers. Um, And it's a privilege to be uh, speaking to you today. And so... um, Today, uh, the last two weeks, we've talked about uh, deacons, and both the, the roles and responsibilities of deacons and the, and the character of deacons or the qualifications of deacons. And we're going to do one more week away from our, our current study of, of being rooted uh, in God's Word. And today, uh, and it really follows nicely with, uh, from uh, the discussion we've had on deacons, and, and the title of the sermon today will be A Call to Unity in the Church. The journey from pride to humility. And as my text today, I'll be using Philippians chapter uh, 2, verses 1 through 4. 
Now, by way of introduction, there's always been issues in the church concerning unity or lack thereof. There have always been divisions in the church going back to the birth of Christ in the New Testament. And that's why the Apostle Paul wrote so much about preserving and pursuing unity uh, in the local church. And if you're here today, which, which you are, and you're breathing, which I assume that you are, I really don't need to convince you Do you all feel this way? About? Should I stop now? Um, but if you're here today and you're, you're living and breathing, I don't need to convince you that we live in the midst of a divided world. And today we're going to spend our time exploring the Apostle Paul's call to unity in the local church. Um, but before we get there, I'd like actually to take us to, to what I'd call the 30,000 foot view to look a little bit at division uh, in the world. And as Solomon said so aptly in Ecclesiastes 1.9, there is nothing new under the sun. Now when he said this, this phrase, it's used 29 times in Ecclesiastes uh, and it's used nowhere else in Scripture. And really what it means, this under the sun, is what happens in a life separated from God with an earthbound view of things. And division is what happens under the sun in a life separated from God. So let's look back at history a little bit. You know, we go back in history to the beginning of time, or even before time began. There was division in heaven. The angelic host. Division between God and the angelic host as they split. They left the church of God. And then there was division uh, between man uh, and God in the garden. So we don't have to look too far from the beginning of things as we know them. To see division. Then you look back at nations uh, throughout time. And for all of history, nations have warred. Um, individually, with alliances and coalitions, they do what we do. They form alliances, they form coalitions. You agree with me, let's get together, let's, let's fight. They do that as well at the, at the level of nations. And they do it because either they want what we have or we want what they have. And then you look at uh, divisions within nations. Um, and societies, and I would say even families, politics, uh, race, morality, your worldview. And that's just within a society. You look at the universal body of Christ, divided by theology, false teachers, evolving towards cultural and societal pressures. And then you look at the individual local church, just like us here at Gateway, divided uh, by preference. Theology at times, masks and vaccines of all things, consumerism. Uh, and you know what? It's not just at the church level because the church is filled with people like you and like me. So at the individual level, you and I, with our remaining sin, or what some would call unredeemed humanness or, or the flesh, we're often divided even in our own hearts. And it's like the man in James as he describes the man when he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Then he says, but let him ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts, and then how does, what, how does he describe this man? He's like the surf of the sea tossed to and fro. He said, he's like a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. And you know what? 
We are like that double-minded man often. We live in both the kingdom of God at times and in the kingdom of this world. And we go back and forth. And this roots it in our own heart. So from the beginning of human history, from the international, from nation to nation, to the human heart, divisible, division is a predictable outcome under the sun and a life apart from God. Now Paul had to address this issue and, and we're really grateful that he did because it's an issue today. It's an issue in many, many churches on the broader level in the body of Christ. Uh, and we see it all around us. You know, we say things like, I want this. I want my way. I prefer this. Um, I like this person, but not that person. You know, this person has really hurt me or offended me. Uh, and I can't forgive them or be around them. You know, there may be no I in team. And there certainly is no I in church. But somehow... The invisible eye seems to be present and growing often into a we. And we see, what we see is the age-old schemes of our adversary in action. As his strategy of divide and conquer moves on. And it goes to the root of division, which begins in our hearts. Uh, and we see this again in James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. And he says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is the source not the pleasures that wage war in your body parts? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. And you're envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. There it is. James lays it out for us. So when there's division at any level in the church, it's inconsistent with and it undermines the message of the gospel. Because here's what we see Jesus saying in John 13, 34 through 35. He says this, I'm giving you a new commandment. That you love one another just as I have loved you. That you also love one another. Now get this. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. That is our witness to the world outside the church. And in John 17, that great chapter of Jesus' prayer to his Father in verses 20 and 21, he said, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who also believe in me, through their world, word, that they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, they also may be in us. Now get this, so that the world may believe that you sent me. And you know, it can be discouraging to see disunity, particularly in the, the universal body of Christ. And that's, quite frankly, a bigger discussion that we're going to have today. But... I want to talk today and focus on the local church in our conversation today. So, with this as an introduction, is there hope for unity in the church? And I just want to say, yes. Resoundingly, yes. There's hope. And the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the church at Philippi, gives us not only hope, but he unpacks for us the call for unity in the church. He shows us the beauty of the church at her best as she demonstrates the heart of the gospel. First, within the church, as we sacrificially love one another in our church, but then also to those who are lost and in need of the hope of the gospel, which is Christ himself. So, as we look at Philippians 1, 1 through 4, I want to give you a main point for today, and that's this, that we demonstrate the heart of the gospel through unity in the church. And this comes from a sacrificial love 
born out of humility. And to get to that main point, I want to ask us several questions today. We're going to explore these questions. Number one is, what, me- what motivates us towards unity in the church? What is our motivation? And secondly, what is the character of unity in the church? And then finally, what is the path to unity in the church? So right now I'd ask you to please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word as we read Philippians 2, 1 through 4. And I'll take a little departure here, and I'll be reading out of the New American Standard Bible. When I became a Christian, I started with the New American Standard Bible, and, and that's the one I use till today. So, Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion... Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one person, I'm sorry, on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, consider one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Let's pray. Father, Just pray today, Lord, as your truth is proclaimed, as your Holy Spirit does what only you can do at the deepest level in our hearts. Lord, would you teach us today how to walk in unity as a church? Lord, how to walk in humility. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So now that we've read the text together, I'd like to open with a little context. Um, You know, the church at Philippi was a very good church. Healthy church, a strong church. In the opening chapter, Paul talks to the church in very loving terms. He says this, I thank my God, and this is verse Philippians 1, 3 through 8. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from this first day until now. For I'm confident of this very thing. He who began a good work among you will complete it by the, day, by the day of Christ Jesus. For it's only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you're all partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now this is a really good, healthy church. And Paul loves these people. They, they bring him joy. I mean, they're loving, they're thankful, they're joyful, they're uh, affectionate, they're confident, they're prayerful, they're obedient, they're faithful to pursue Christ, they're generous. And even Paul says in chapter 4 how generous they are to him. They don't have any doctrinal issues in their church that we know of, that's spoken of here. Um, and there's no immorality that he talks about like he does in other uh, of his letters to the churches. So when you think about that, Um, This is close to being an ideal church. But even a church with that character, disunity was an issue that Paul felt like he needed to address to the Philippians. If you look in chapter 1 and verse 27, he pleads with them to stand firm in one spirit, one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And that's the first chapter where he's, he's pleading with them to walk in oneness and unity. And in the last chapter, in the fourth chapter, he talks about a particular issue in the church. 
in chapter 4, verse 2, when he says, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. There was relational issues in this church. There was a level of division in this church, even this ideal church. So he brackets this letter to the Philippian church with concern about disunity in the church. And disunity is not just a minor issue in the church. And in fact, I would say it may be the issue in the church if, as Jesus said, the world will know us by our love. And if we don't demonstrate this love to one another, the world is not going to understand the power of the gospel. It's been an issue with Paul in so many of his letters. Just for some examples, the other churches in the New Testament. When he wrote Romans to the Romans, he told them to be devoted in love. He told them to prefer one another in honor. And he said, be of the same mind and be humble in the 12th chapter. To the church at Corinth, he said, there should be no divisions among you. You should be of the same mind and the same judgment. And honestly, the church in Corinth was a mess by any standards. It was a mess compared to the pagan society around it. There was so much division in the Corinthian church. In 2 Corinthians, he said, you should be like-minded and live in peace. To the Ephesians, he said, walk in unity. And he talks about the spiritual battle. He highlights that in chapter 6 in Ephesians. To the Colossians, he says, pursue unity, the bond of peace by love. And this is just a sampling of the disunity that we see in the first century church when the church was born. So I like the way John MacArthur says it this way. The Apostle Paul knows that unity is a product of love and love is a product of humility. And humility is a profound virtue. In fact, maybe the noblest of all Christian virtues. Humility enables us to love sacrificially and sacrificial love is what creates unity. And you know, just something that many of us can relate to, just as in marriage, as it says in Mark 10, 9, we ask the Lord, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. But it's a constant battle. It's a lifelong battle. Because why? Because the enemy of the church, the enemy of God, the enemy of Christ, wants to bring in discord, disunity, frictions, and division of all kinds. And far too often, to use a military term, we give aid and comfort to the enemy. So with the context of the church at Philippi and Paul's exhortations to unity in the church across the first century churches, let's return to the text in chapter 2, verse 1, where we're going to begin with a call to unity as a demonstration of the gospel of Christ. So in chapter 2, verse 1, we're going to start with the first word. Therefore. And of course, what do you do when you have therefore? You ask what it's there for, right? And so this is going to take us back to um, chapter 1 and verse 27, where, God, where Paul gives us the call to unity, a mandate for unity in the church, where he says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So it begins, a call to unity begins with the gospel. And interesting words he uses here. When he says to conduct yourselves, to conduct is, is to be like a citizen with allegiance, to being pledged to. It's your identity, what you're identifying with, uh, a core to how you live your life. And then this word worthy, it means this, having worth that matches actual value. 
And so let me go a little further. Your life is lived in such a way that is consistent with the value of the gospel. And what does that look like in the church? Paul goes on to say in chapter 1, So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And what we have here in chapter 1 is his call to unity and the diligence of striving together. There it is, the call to unity that displays the power of the gospel of Christ. And Paul adds in verses 28 through 30, and this is important, and he says, In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And this too from God. For to you it's been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer on his behalf, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. And here's what I will tell you. That if you're going to have unity, if we're going to have unity here at Gateway, we're going to have to battle for it. It's a fight. Um, and that's why the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4.3, Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. And this is no small word, being diligent. It's a strong verb. And it says this, Make every effort. Work at this tirelessly. You have to be at it all the time. Pursuing, preserving, and protecting unity of the church. And honestly, I've been in church leadership a long time. And you know what? You've been in churches a long time. And you know what? We get tired, don't we? We get tired because things can get hard. Relationships can get hard. Issues come up that we don't agree with. It can get tiring. People let us down. We let others down. We sin. They sin. But Paul says, keep at it. Keep at it. This is core to the gospel. So we see at the end of the chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, Paul lays down, let's call it a mandate. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And what does that mean? It means standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And that's the call to unity. So number one, we have a call to unity. So Paul follows this call to unity up with a practical section in the first four verses of chapter 2, which is our text today. And here's, uh, here's what he talks about in those first four verses. Number one is he talks about the motivation for unity. And that motivation is the gospel itself. He talks about the character of unity. And the character of unity is oneness. And then he talks about and ends up with the path to unity, which is a journey from pride to humility. So let's look at the, in verse 1, the motivation for unity. He says, Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion. Well, before we, before we get into the actual meat of this, the if here is what is called in the Greek a first-class conditional. And what that really means is that the if is not a guess. It's, it's more accurately uh, worded as since or because. And so when you read this, this is because of these things, not if they exist. So with this in mind, Paul's asking here, is what God has done for us enough to motivate us to fulfill the will that he has for us? And what is that? 
that we would be one, that we would have one mind, one love, one heart, one soul. And by this, we would show the power of the gospel. And you know, we know that the world's fragmented, but the church is to manifest the power of the gospel in its unity collectively, as well as individually transformed lives. By the way, when we look at these motives, I want to say this, they're not meant to be legalistic. Go do this because I said to do this. These are motives that come from the gospel of Christ, from his great love for us, poured out on our behalf and poured into us by his presence. So now these motives are overlapping as we begin to look at these uh, and they work to intersect and there's really a common theme here. And what Paul is beginning to tell us is that, you know what, because of all these things, there should be a gratitude in your heart to the Lord. These should motivate you to walk in unity. So, so what are these things that he lays out? First, he starts with this. Because there is encouragement in Christ. And this word encouragement is the word paraklesis. And if you're familiar with, with the Greek, you've, you've also heard the term paraclete, which is the Holy Spirit, comes alongside of you. And that's actually what this is talking about. That Christ comes alongside of you to help you, to counsel you, to strengthen you, to exhort you. And this is an invitation really to soak in what it means to be in Christ and what it means that Christ is in you. Ephesians 1 and other passages in the scripture elaborate on your riches in Christ, how he has personally met you, how he's come alongside you and given you all the spiritual blessings in the heavenlies, in himself, all the grace, all the sacrificial love. And even as it says in Philippians 4, and I love this when he's talking about You know, how do you not be anxious? He says, the Lord is near. The Lord is with you. And so the Lord Jesus, his presence. And with all this, we can hear the Lord Jesus saying, I want you to be one. As he said in John 17. And if his gentle encouragement means anything to us, if his wise counsel through the pages of scripture means anything, if his constant available power to you and I mean anything, If all the spiritual blessings in the heavenlies poured out on you from the Lord mean anything, then can you please pursue unity? So, encouragement in Christ. Second, we're motivated because there is a consolation of love. Another way to say something similar is since the loving tenderness of the Lord with which he's blessed us in our salvation and our sanctification, since his love has poured out so much to us. And the consolation term is really a kind of like a gentle cheering, the Lord cheering you on. One lexicon said, gentle cheering, a comfort, a kind of tenderness towards us. And literally this word means, or could be translated to speak by some as coming close to his side intimately with comfort, and consolation. And again, I love the way John MacArthur says this. Since we have this intimate relationship with Christ, who's empowering us and comforting us and granting us all spiritual blessings, since he saw us in our sin and loved us anyway, he forgave us, he graciously picks us up, he thoroughly cleanses us, he gives us a new heart, a new mind, a new life, all undeserved, all by his grace. Does it mean anything to us, this personal consolation, this personal comfort by our Lord as he comes alongside of us? So much so that we would say, I will never do anything 
to dishonor you. And I will never do anything to dishonor and to divide your blessed church. Does it motivate us in that way? Thirdly, we're motivated to unity because there is fellowship of the Spirit. And this fellowship is the word which you've probably heard often, koinonia, a partnership, communion, actually shared life, that we share the life of the Holy Spirit. In a sense, when you look at these first three, you can see the Trinity here, right? First, there's encouragement in Christ, and that's Christ the Son. And then you see the consolation of love, and love comes from the Father because He is the source of that love. God so loved the world. And then here's the Holy Spirit and the fellowship He provides. And we kind of see something similar to this in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, when He says this, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we did in righteousness, but in accordance with His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He richly poured out upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So how does this change your heart and your motives and your purpose to know the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have poured their very presence into your life, along with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies, to provide for you the power and strength and counsel and comfort and fellowship you need to walk? In this world. And does this communion with the triune God have any demands on your life and on my life? Are we not moved out of sheer loving gratitude to answer the prayer of our Lord who prayed that they may be one? And you know, unity in the body of Christ is pure beauty as it projects the gospel in unmistakable high definition. Division in the church presents a powerless, tarnished gospel to a lost and dying world who's really in need of a radical transformation from above. Well, fourthly and finally, to motivate us to unity, he says, because there's affection and compassion. And this first word, affection, what it really means is bowels, your guts, deeply felt affections. Because you have been the recipient of deeply felt affections. And this is what Paul refers to in chapter 1, verse 8, when he says, How I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Christ has the deep, deep feelings of affections for you and I. Let that just sink in for just a minute. And the second word has to do with deep feelings of compassion and mercy that that someone has for someone's misfortune. So if you have the affection of Christ, and the result of that is that there's mercy extended to you and I. So to sum up the motivation for unity, because you've received deep affection from the Savior and tender mercies from God, because the Lord pours out sympathy and compassion and kindness and love, makes you a partner and communes with you, because He feels so deeply affectionate towards you, so compassionate, Paul says, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And Paul is pleading with the Philippians. I mean, he has such an affection for them and they have such an affection for him. He's pleading with them, not being heavy-handed, 
Like get your act together. Quit being selfish. Do what you're supposed to do. No. But he's appealing to them on the basis of a loving response to the massive goodness of the Lord. No threats or coercion. He wants to persuade them by the high and holy motives of love and gratitude and honor to the Lord. So before we move to, now that we've talked about the motives towards unity, before we move to the character of unity, I want to share one practical way to immerse yourself in the gospel, to allow Christ to shape your heart motives more and more. Years ago, I read a book called The Gospel Primer by a guy by the name of Milton Vincent. And in this, he talks about the idea of rehearsing the gospel daily. Another way to say that is preaching the gospel to yourself daily. And he actually provides in this book both uh, a section of prose and then a section on poetry where he walks through the gospel story from beginning of creation to end and all that Christ has done for you and I. And it really, it really gets to, to the heart level in this book. There's a couple of other books. One is called What is the Gospel by Mark Gilbert. It's, a, it's an easy read, but it, it looks at the gospel in a very direct way. Another, a little more detailed, is the explicit gospel by Matt Chandler. Now, we have a Sunday school class, and about every two years, I will take our Sunday school class through all three of these books together. And we'll just simply ask the question, what is the gospel? Because the gospel is something that we need to spend our whole lives gazing at. It's that beautiful. It's that great. It's that grand. And by doing that, it's doing exactly what Paul is saying. It changes our hearts. It changes our motives. So I want to challenge you, can you start every day by preaching the gospel to yourself? If you don't know what else to do, go to Ephesians 1 and 2 and 3. Read those. Read Romans 1 through 8. Read Peter's sermon and read how people responded to the gospel there. Constantly, constantly read the gospel. And if you want to get one of these books, get with me. And we may have some of these in the, uh, in the library. I'm not sure. So now let's look, uh, let's transition. That was verse 1. Let's transition to verse 2, where we're going to look at the character of unity. And in verse 2, he says this, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. So Paul says, based on these motives that we looked at in verse 1, make my joy complete. And here he introduces the character of unity. Same mind, same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. So Paul, he started out with saying, we need to honor the Lord in this. And now he's saying, do it also for my joy. Do it also for my joy. So let's look at the character of unity. First, being of the same mind. And what we're talking about here simply is the truth. It's thinking the same way. And we can see this in a couple of places. In 2 Corinthians 13, 11, Paul says this, Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice, mend your ways, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace be with you all. Along with Romans 15, 5 through 6, another passage is like this, where he talks about being like-minded. He says, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, so that with one purpose 
and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you have to think the same way. He wants us to be like-minded. And at some level, he's talking about that there's a doctrinal unity here in our thinking. And you know, at Gateway, I know Grady's explained this uh, several times from the pulpit. How do we look at this? Well, we look at this as in, in three layers. One is there is primary doctrine that literally things that we need to agree on to even call each other fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. This is the level of being a Christian. But there's a secondary level that we need to agree on if we're going to walk together in the local church. If you and I are going to journey together, we need to have the same view of truth in some key areas if we're going to walk together. And those things would fall in a secondary uh, place. But then there's also tertiary uh, doctrinal issues where you and I can walk together that we may disagree on these areas. Uh, But they're not areas that are going to rise to the level of we can't really... Uh, partner together in the local church. Uh, and some of these things, like even in that second tier that we have, uh, that I have brothers and sisters across the city and across the world who I wouldn't agree with, we can still partner together and love one another and fellowship together. But to be together in the local church, we need to have certain things that we've agreed together, that we're walking together and marching together in truth. So Paul's talking about that here among other things. And he'll get to to being like-minded again here when we get to the fourth point. So the very foundation of unity begins with truth. And I'll tell you something. You don't get to unity by shared emotion. You don't get to unity by shared experience. The church has always been the pillar and crown of the truth. And the only unity that's ever going to mean anything is one that is constantly bound by truth. You can't be of the same mind and you can't think the same way unless you're attached to the same realities. And unity comes when believers think alike in the way we've just talked about. And even if you look over in the fourth chapter of Philippians where Paul says, finally, brethren, whatever is true, and then he goes to say whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely. He says whatever is true is honorable, whatever is true is right, whatever is true is pure, whatever is true is lovely. And then he says, dwell on these things. So we want to have agreement on the truth. So unity just starts with biblical thinking and biblical truth. That's not all there is, but that's where it starts. The same mind, like-minded. And then there's the second very important characteristic, following immediately after being the same mind, and that is maintaining the same love. And by the way, I love the way Paul puts together the truth and love. You know, so often we're like on a seesaw and we can be all truth and lack love or we can just be all love and not focus on the truth. Paul says it's one package. That's so, so important for us. But he says, what, so what is this same love? Well, let's look at what it's not first. It's not the sin of partiality or favoritism, which we see in James 2. So in, in James 2, uh, in verses 1 and 4 and 8 and 9, let me read those to you. He says, my brothers and sisters, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. And what he means by that is that you're loving one another differently. People in your church, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? And then in verses 8 and 9 he goes on to say, if however you're fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality... You are committing sin 
and are convicted by the law as violators. So one author says it this way, to have the same love is to love others equally. On a purely emotional level, having equal love for others is impossible because people are not equally attractive in multiple ways. Agape love, however, is the love of will, not of preference or attraction. It's based on intentional, conscious choice to seek the welfare of its object. It's because agape love is based on the will that it can be commanded. Minds governed by selfless humility produce lives that overflow with genuine, practical love for fellow believers. On the other hand, sinful, self-centered thinking inhibits love and unity. Dissension and lack of unity in the church inevitably stem from lack of love. And I want to share something with you. Romans, when, when we went through Romans in our Sunday school class years ago, when you get to Romans chapter 12, there's this verse 9. And it says this. It says, let your love be genuine. Or let your love be without hypocrisy. And if we're honest with one another, you look around in the church, you probably think, I really don't love everybody the same. I really love that person more. Or I really love that person more. And so can I actually do this? Can I, can I have a genuine love? Well, what I want to say first is that when we make those kind of statements, oftentimes we're, we're talking emotional love. I feel about that person a certain way. And that's what we're talking about. But I also want to say that God does want us to have affection for one another. He wants us to have a heartfelt love for one another. <clears throat> and if you're ever in the position where you say, you know, I can't do that. I, I just, I can't produce that. Well, well, you're right. You can't produce that. Let me give you some advice that I've given before, and it's this. Do love while repenting. Do love while repenting. Folks, it's going to be a lifelong journey in our hearts. God wants us to step out and love one another. And if our hearts aren't right, <clears throat> and let me just tell you a little theology of emotions here. <clears throat> our emotions are like a dashboard in a car. And when you look at that dashboard, you're going to see lights going off. And when you see them, you know what it points to? That something's wrong under the hood probably. And what emotions do often, they tell us that something's not right in here. If I get this emotion or that emotion. And what it does is it causes us to pause and say, Lord, what's going on here? I need to search a little deeper. But in the meantime, I'm going to do love while repenting, while turning to you, Lord. And so that is huge. So we talked about being of the same mind, maintaining the same love. And then he says, united in spirit. A very interesting word here. And what that really means, it's translated, it's one word, and it means one-souled. S-O-U-L-E-D. One-souled. So you know what that makes us? We're soul brothers <laughs> and soul sisters. That's right. That's what we are. And I love that. And, and here's, here's the key to this. So we don't care about earthly identifications. We don't care whether you're a Jew or whether you're Greek, whether you're a barbarian or a Scythian, whether you're male or female, whether you're slave or free. Those may be earthly identities, but we see each other in Christ. You are a new creation. We are now all adopted into the family of God. We're more brothers and sisters than blood will ever be. 
So we don't care about earthly identities. The same loves, the same desires, the same passions, the same causes. When we're in Christ, that's what he's given us and that's what we need to walk in. United in spirit. And fourthly, it says we're to be intent on one purpose. There's a lot of ways to translate this. Um, what it really means is being of the same mind, thinking as one. He goes back to the very first one that he starts. But in this case, there's a sense of, you could add the idea of having one goal or one purpose, one direction that you're heading in. And so back to Romans 15, 5 and 6 that we met a minute ago. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus so that with one purpose and in one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this unity ultimately ends up with one voice seeking the glory of God. That's our purpose together, to glorify God. The, the one great gospel goal is to glorify the Lord. Isn't that beautiful the way that ends up in unity? We're all heading in that direction. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about the Lord. So here's just a little summary of this section. So we know what the motives are, are that are found in the gospel. Everything the Lord is doing and has done and will do for you and I. And as a result, the character of this unity, we have a common understanding of truth. We love each other equally without respect of persons. We feel the same passion for the glory of the Lord. That dominates everything. And that we are of one soul. We're literally soulmates. So what is the path to unity? What gets us to unity? And we'll begin to wind down as we go here. And you look at verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, Consider one another is more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Well, it starts with recognizing, first, the pride in our own lives, doing nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. This term selfishness actually means, uh, is used to mean selfish ambition. And it refers to things like strife and party and spirit and rivalry and faction I've got my agenda in my group, and you've got yours. Uh, I don't like your agenda, and you don't like mine, and all of a sudden condemnation and criticism comes. Um, and this really is driven by all-consuming personal desires. And then this word, empty conceit. This is the word, kinodoxia, and, it, and it, what it really means is empty glory or vain glory. I'm out for my own glory. So Paul's saying nothing from selfish ambition. Nothing from my own glory. Our pride is rooted deeply in our fallen flesh. And when people in the church go down the road of selfish ambition or vain glory, honestly, this is just not easy to deal with. And never are we more empty, spiritually speaking, than we seek our own glory, our own interests. But then, and... and I want to introduce you to another practical thing, and this we do have in the Resource Center. It's called From Pride to Humility. I want to read just a, a small excerpt out of this uh, by Stuart Scott when he talks about pride. He said, Six different Hebrew words are used for pride, but all of them can convey lifting up, highness, magnification, 
presumptuousness or rebelliousness of self. In the Greek language, the, word for pride, the words for pride occur in two different categories. One particular word group suggests the idea of straining or stretching one's neck, as if to hold one's head up high because of one, what one thinks he has made of himself or accomplished, to magnify or to be haughty. The other category in the Greek conveys a blindness and even suggests the idea of being enveloped with smoke. And I really want you to think about this. This is the difficulty of our own pride. It's often that we don't see our own pride, that we're blinded to our own pride. And when someone tells us something that may indicate we have some pride, we're blinded to that. Literally like we're enveloped in smoke. We need the Holy Spirit to do a work in us, to even show us where we have pride in our lives. And a definition that he gives for pride here is this. The mindset of self, a master's mindset rather than that of a servant. A focus on self and the service of self. A pursuit of self, recognition and self-exaltation and a desire to control and use all things for self. Now that may sound a little harsh, but I know I fall right in there. How many times I control things for me. And I, I know this. Thinks the, the Lord at least has taken a little bit of the blinders off and showed me how proud I am. And he's doing a work in me. So that's pride. So we need to move from pride to humility. So let's move on to the second half of this. But with humility of mind, consider one another as more important than yourselves. That's where unity begins, where the ugly giant of pride is slain. It's one word in Greek, just one word, humility of mind, and it means, now get this, to think like a servant or to think like a slave. I love it when Seth prayed earlier, he talks about we are slaves of Christ. That's who we are. But is that our mindset? The idea of thinking like a servant or like a slave was foreign in the Greek culture, and I would say it's foreign in our culture today. The mindset of master or authority or power, that these are the mindsets of the ages. Sorry. So think of yourselves like a slave. I will just say this. It has to be a product of the gospel, uh, of humbling yourself under the realities of the gospel. And James says it this way. Exalt yourself and the Lord will bring you down. Humble yourself and the Lord will lift you up. There must be no desire to be admired, no desire to be respected, no desire to have special honors, to be known, to be listened to, to be prominent. So ask yourself, do I live with that kind of humility where the last person that I'm concerned about is me? And in 1 Peter 5, he says this, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. And the truth is, is that your time will come. But that's in God's hands, and it's not in your hands or my hands. Then he adds, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves, or literally being superior to yourself. And every man knows his own heart. You and I, we should be able to think about doing this because as we look around and I look at other people, I don't know your sin, but I know mine. I know my sin better than anybody's. It's one of the reasons Paul could say that I'm the chief of sinners because he was so intimate with his own heart. Romans 7, his past, he knew. 
And you and I know our own sin. I don't know your heart. I don't know your sin, but I certainly do know mine. And he expands on humility with the idea of being others-focused as well. He says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And I will tell you, that's a huge redefinition of your life and my life. Um, That it's not about me. That it's about others. Now, we have to take care of ourselves, obviously. But Paul says, just don't just do that. Not for your own personal interest, but also for the interests of others. So I want to read this excerpt out of here from Stuart Scott. Again. Where he says this, Humble people are focused on God and others, not on self. Even their focus on others is out of a desire to love and glorify God. They have no need to be recognized or approved. There is no competition with God or others. They have no need to elevate themselves, knowing that they have been forgiven and that God's love has been undeservedly and irrevocably set on them. Instead, a humble person's goal is to elevate God and encourage others. In short, they no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. And he puts together from that a a simple definition of humility when he says this, the mindset of Christ, a servant's mindset, a focus on God and others, a pursuit of the recognition and the exaltation of God, and a desire to glorify and please God in all things and by all things that he has given. So I would really like to recommend this. There's so much more in this book that actually gets down to the heart level if you've never walked through that book. Um, so from pride to humility, um, I want to leave you with some, well, I'm sorry, I messed up in my notes there. So as we come to a close today, I really just want to reiterate what Paul reiterated is that this starts with the gospel and if I could encourage you with anything it would be to spend time daily rehearsing the gospel so what was our main point today that we demonstrate the heart of the gospel through unity in the church that comes from a sacrificial love that's born out of humility we ask the question what motivates us toward unity in the church the gospel marinating in and preaching the gospel to ourselves daily out of gratitude for the Lord, all the Lord has done for us in the gospel of our salvation, we should labor together in the unity that comes from being in Christ. As the gospels come to you, it should go through you. And this verse is probably one of the, my favorite verses in the scriptures and concerning unity in Ephesians 4 where Paul says this, Be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving each other. And here's the key right here. Just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So what's the character of unity in the church? It's oneness. By maintaining the same convictions concerning the truth, loving everybody the same, being soulmates, and all of us together living for the glory of God. And what is the path to unity in the church? It's the path from pride to humility at the personal level that we set aside all selfishness and empty conceit. We humble ourselves We're more concerned with others than with ourselves. And this wipes out all kinds of hostility and competition. So as the praise team comes, let me just close this here. There's a song that I've listened to that really, I think, expresses my heart when it comes to this. 
And it goes like this. Oh, kneel me down again. Here at your feet. Show me how much you love humility. Oh, Spirit, be the star that leads me to the humble heart of love that I see in you. For you are the God of the broken, the friend of the weak. You wash the feet of the weary, embrace the one in need. And I want to be like you, Jesus, and have this heart in me. For you are the God of the humble. You are the humble king. Amen. Love and 
his name has been disgraced. All our sins have been erased. He has raised us from the grave to new life. For the sake of his name, for his unrivaled fame. He has cleansed the sanctified aside the cross. Out his wrath on his people's behalf. See him vindicate the greatness of his name, his glorious name, his glorious name. God, we just thank you for this time together today. And Lord, as we just think about oneness as a church, Lord, we can not do that apart from you. And Lord, help us to know that the gospel is at stake. Lord, in our personal relationships, as we love one another sacrificially in this body here at Gateway, lay down our lives for one another. Lord, would you just unveil the pride in our lives to lead us to humility the humility that we see in Christ. And Lord, 
we just fall on your grace and your mercy to do that, Lord, that we could display the gospel in all of its beauty to a lost and dying world by the unity here in this place. We pray all this in strong, mighty, powerful, and matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.